Is there a crisis of leadership in the modern world? And if so, what can we do about it? To address these issues, I spoke to Chris Lewis, co-author with Dr. Pippa Valmgren of the book The Leadership Lab, Understanding Leadership in the 21st Century. Our wide-ranging conversation looks at the broader context of social, economic and cultural change that shapes leadership models, the disconnect between leaders and their colleagues and fellow citizens, and how we can develop better models of success. We discuss what the fortunes of certain football clubs tell us about the wider issues, and Chris finishes with an unresolved paradox to keep you thinking. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Mark Eltringham, and this is the Workplace Insight Podcast. First of all, um, I'd like to thank you for taking time to chat with us, and um, I'd like to offer my congratulations to both you and your co-author, Pippa, for winning the Business Book of the Year Award uh, for your book, The Leadership Lab. So what I would conclude from that is that this is a compelling book in its own right, but that it chimes also with the challenges organizations face in the 21st century. So how would you define those challenges? Well, thank you, Mark. That's very uh, that's very kind of you. The challenges are really many and various uh, because th- th- they fall really into three areas. One is certainly that the pace of change is, uh, is is quickened in just about every area, not just te- technically, but politically, geopolitically, uh, and culturally. And secondly, the over-reliance on uh, analysis and data has begun to make a big impact on the inability of leadership to join the dots. So for instance, um, a lot of leadership relied on, in 2016 on the research for the referendum poll uh, to assume that people weren't actually going to, to leave, uh, didn't want to leave. And of course that turned out to be quite wrong. And um, we had a similar sort of thing with Donald Trump's election in America where the data indicated that Trump didn't have a chance of becoming president and he became president. And this has kind of been echoed in the sort of third area uh, of almost unimaginable leadership failure. And um, and our book starts off by cataloging some of that leadership failure, which starts with taking, uh, say, a case at Oxfam, where the leadership uh, were happy to exchange aid for sex, that uh, at Volkswagen they were lying about emissions, that that in the Catholic Church, uh, they covered up gross cases of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. We've seen leadership in uh, philanthropies and in hospitals, for instance, routinely called out for negligence. We've seen the collapse of the banking system where bankers have routinely laundered money, uh, sheltered taxes, dealt with uh, illegal flows of money from illicit sources. Mm-hmm. And uh, we saw the architect of NASDAQ itself, Bernie Madoff, create the largest ever Ponzi scheme that we've seen in human history. And, uh, and on top of that, now our leadership is, is continuing to fail. Just last, in the last couple of weeks, we heard that Southern Water had polluted many rivers in the South uh, and were fined for covering it up. Uh, when we look at the catalog of leadership failure, it's probably unprecedented in peacetime that we've got to a stage where never has uh, people's faith in leadership been more badly shaken, and consequently even their faith in capitalism is being shaken as well. So, so that's what we addressed in the book. Of course, those are major issues. I mean, they're far away from you know many of the, well, I know they're not always mundane, um, but the more mundane challenges that uh, 
that we talk about in terms of the workplace. But do you, do you see the same kind of failures and, and thinking um, manifesting themselves in, in the way people run their businesses um, at, a, at a more sort of local level? Yes, indeed. I mean, our research was drawn from, from meetings that we did all over the world with a variety of different CEOs of companies, leaders of organizations of all, of all size. And, and there were some general themes that leadership was spending too much of its time working through a to-do list, uh, very much focused on actions and not focused on a to-be list. Irrespective of the size of the organization, people very much want their leaders to be something and they want to work for an organization which is doing good or has a set of values or ethics. And uh, it's, uh, the, the notion that the workplace is really just simply there as a way of providing money, is um, it, it, it doesn't work anymore uh, even in the smallest of organizations. You know, whether, it's a, whether it's the tiniest of organizations, it's still a community of people and those communities are becoming increasingly important and the, the role of of employers to create a welcoming environment, which is understanding and flexible, and uh, and uh, and also does some of these being values like reassuring, guiding, uh, um, supporting. All of those things are, are are words that go with the verb to be. Uh, so so there, there's there are some real commonalities irrespective of the size of the organisation. Yeah, I mean we're we're seeing a growing body of research that links people's not not just their their feelings of connection with um, an organization, but also their feelings of well-being are linked to um, the, the perceived ethical standards of of the organization and the way that it's led. So, um, and, it, and it also, you know, we're, we're seeing um, research about how, you know, the, the functioning of the building itself, you know, it's, if, if that's following sort of ethical standards, then, um, you know, people's well-being will, will improve regardless of any sort of physical so, so that's so that's an interesting segue because one of the, po- the the points we make in the book is that in the last year, uh, the top cause of CEO departure, thirty eight percent of of departures were down to ethical lapse. It's the highest it's ever been, and so it, interestingly, the people that we recruit our leadership from aren't necessarily people that understand the difference between good and bad. They're people that understand the technical proficiencies of management and or a particular profession. And, uh, and increasingly, the, the speculation is that the people in leadership positions are part of an elite that doesn't care anymore and is not prepared to maintain the ladders that they themselves climbed, if indeed they climbed any. Okay. And, and, and that is why seeing them leave their, their roles increasingly. Is that, is that what you're suggesting? Well, the, 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 the data is clear that ethical lapse is the number one uh, cause. But one of the one of the issues that we delved into with this is the is the seeming uh, paradoxes uh, which are at the heart of this, which is that the, the the data can point to something being absolutely true, but everybody knows it's absolutely false, uh, even though the data points that it's true. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. So uh, <clears throat> a headline of inflation uh, in this country, I think it's currently two point two percent, and um, yet everybody knows inflation is. Um, measured by the price of things. Um, but anybody who's been shopping n- knows that the price of certain products in the supermarket has stayed the same whilst the volume has shrunk. And that's how inflation uh, can be in the system without anybody measuring it. The real rate, rate of inflation is, of course, much higher than 2.2%. And most people who are at the bottom of the structure can tell you that everything is getting a lot more expensive uh, for them. 
if we take um, another example like Sir Bradley Wiggins, who's uh, without a doubt has been a sporting hero, but because the substances that he he took during his uh, his achievements were not on a banned list, he is a bona fide champion. But there's there's a cloud of suspicion that hangs over why he was using those uh, individual drugs. Uh, and so there's there's a list of of, of examples. That's why we created this uh, thing at the heart of the book, the Kithera, which is to show that for each of these actions, there's a opposite reaction to it. So for instance, people have never had access to more information, but the net result of having so much information fired at them all the time is that they're constantly overloaded with it and are una- unable to differentiate really large trends that affect them. Does that make sense? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, we, I wrote something about, or on a related thing recently about how, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, well, it's, it's basically um, this, the same point that you've just made, which is that when you're constantly presented with information, some of it may be counterintuitive, some of it may challenge your own preconceptions and stuff like that. You know, it can be very, very difficult for you to make sense of things. And especially, you know, in, I think this is the point you raised with your, your Kithera model um, about very, very complex systems and and how you 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 make sense of them. I, I mean, I'm also interested in knowing where you the, the term Kithera comes from. Well, it, uh, it's a good question, uh, Mark. It's uh, it's an island off the coast of Greece called Kithera, and um, uh, just uh, about two years ago, um, a device was dredged from the bottom, which people thought was a fairly recent piece of timekeeping uh, equipment. It turned out to be a uh, thousands of years old, and it was a, a celestial clock that the Greeks had developed and had lost, and um, and it was a it was a, 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 a method for measuring uh, the uh, the seasons and the rising and falling of the sun. Uh, but it was a mechanical um, uh, device which uh, predated even the early estimates of when they thought this uh, could have been done. So um, so we we were kind of fascinated by. Uh, the, the fact that history is also uh, a lot more fluid than we think. We think history is made up of facts, but of course, history keeps flowing around us a bit like uh, an ocean itself. Um, and our view of the past keeps changing. Sure. I mean, at the heart of this model, though, that, you, that you've developed is um, these, sort of, these sort of eight spokes um, that people have to keep in balance. Um and you, you've presumably framed that as a way of making sense of the complex systems that people are, are dealing with. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, we use it as a way of, of, of trying to highlight the fact that there is um, uh, there's, the, the, these, these eight spokes are, are paradoxes, that, some, that things can be quantum superpositioned. So something can be true and false at, at the same time. Yeah. So, for instance, it is true that women are making greater progress into the workplace, but... Um, the number of women who are in positions of authority uh, within companies is uh, is still not where it needs to be. And the and and where we highlight this in the book, we talk about the um, the work of uh, Thomas uh, uh, Chamaro Premizic, who's a professor at UCL who wrote a great book entitled "Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders?" And um, he pointed out in a series of experiments that. For instance, men would apply for a position when they were 35% qualified for it, where women wouldn't apply uh, until they were 85% qualified. In field tests that he did, he asked women, uh, men to act uh, in, in, in with more feminine traits 
dis displaying more uh, compassion and uh, more empathy. And the audience felt that they were better leaders as a result. And then he asked women leaders to perform in front of an audience where they demonstrated more masculine traits, okay. um, assertion and dominance, etc. And the audience rated them on a scale of psychopathy. And, um, and so uh, his work is fascinating, but it, it does appear to demonstrate that, that, that one of the factors that we're seeing is men with a large amount of confidence and a, a relatively inverse amount of skill, and women being, in, in many instances, the other way around. And in all of these cases of management and leadership failure that we've seen, uh, almost uniquely, they were done by middle-aged men. Uh, sure. without, without any female representation uh, on the board. Uh, say, for instance, at the Catholic Church, you would understand that. Yeah. But, I mean, there's very little representation of women in executive positions in, in say, FTSE 100 firms. Is, is there Ex not? Exactly. And, and the representation that often is there is behaving in a very masculine way. And okay. our point isn't, isn't made about gender so much, that we need uh, more women or more, more men in boardrooms. But our point is that we need men who can display feminine skills and, and women that can display masculine skills because uh, it's having the, the full length of the piano keyboard to be able to play and um, uh, to make sure that, for instance, you know, one of the things that uh, Premusic points out is that women leaders tend to, to, to achieve great things with the team and, um, uh, and the team will achieve the goals but the individual leader will fail. Uh, whereas in male-based teams, the individual will be successful, but often the team will fail. Um, and uh, his work is really quite interesting in that respect, in that he's pointing out that many of the things that we can see to be uh, uh, so apparent in a really well-run workplace um, are the skills of caring, of nurturing, of community, of collaboration, of empathy, and I'm not saying that they are exclusively uh, feminine skills, but, but often men find the execution or the creation of those types of environments uh, quite difficult. Okay. Of the women who do make it into sort of senior positions, though, when you, when you mentioned that they display um, more masculine traits, is that because they are inherently more like that, or is that something that they adopt as a front in order to, to sort of progress in that world? It's a really excellent question because we, we pondered this a great deal um, because one of the things that we see dominating boardrooms is uh, a tendency towards the short term, the tactical, the quantitative, the analytical. And um, uh, I do remember uh, a couple of cases where uh, uh, Pippa was describing her frustrations uh, and she sits on a number of boards. And... Um, that, that uh, a lot of her colleagues are unable to, they're, they're able to grasp the maths, but they couldn't grasp the mood. And, and they were very suspicious of anybody that talked about feelings or the mood in a, in a company. And um, you yourself know, um, as a Stoke City fan, oh, that, <laughs> that, that's, that the mood really matters. Um, when you see a striker that's confident, um, they can do incredible things. Um, and the mood of a soccer club is really important to how it performs. But you, it's very difficult to analyze it or measure it in short-term tactical quantitative uh, uh, ways. You know, I'm, I'm sort of, um, I'm, I'm old enough to, to remember some of the sort of 
the greats from, from Stoke City. And um, when you go back over the years, there were certain individuals that just inspired a club and the mood changed around those things. And I think, you know, leadership in the workplace is very similar to that. If, if you, you can get people who just inspire a workplace by being the mortar between the bricks. And, and sometimes that's not given enough importance in the community when you're just measuring by numbers. Well, I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> I, I, I might have developed this part of the conversation three or four years ago, but not, not just now. Um, for, for full disclosure, which, which is your club? <laughs> well, actually, well, I'm a long-suffering Spurs fan, so okay. So I, I go, I go, I go way back to the yeah. glory years. But um, as you know, it's just kind of like a uh, an exercise in, in in hope over. I think what was what's the phrase? It's uh, I can take the the despair. It's the hope I can't stand. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm having to t- tell my sons now that um, uh, you know this is this is the price you have to pay at some point. <laughs> No, and, and, and everybody has to pay it, you know, regardless of how successful the club or not, because it's all about your expectations of, of what constitutes success. Yeah, you can't be a proper fan unless you've suffered. Uh, yeah, I think you've got to pay your dues at some point. So, <laughs> and they're doing it now. I've done it, obviously, several times over the past sort of 40 or 50 years, but, you know, they're, they're now having to, uh, to pay their dues. Um, my first game was actually against Spurs in 1974, and I, I remember it very, very clearly. So. Oh, now... Um... Now, who was who was playing in your team then? Did you, did you, did you? Was Richie still playing then? Yeah, just John Richie and Jimmy Green off up front. Alan Hudson yeah. was playing with us. Um, Dennis Smith. Um, yeah, Banks had just gone. I think um, it was just uh, just at the end of Alan Hudson's career, wasn't it? He was. Uh, well, no, no, just at the beginning, before he went off the rails with uh, for for one reason or another. So yeah, but your team was. I remember that day was like. Um, um, Cyril Knowles, Ralph Coates, Gilzine, Chivers, those sorts of people. So yeah, yeah, that that was probably when Pat Jennings was still in the goals. Uh, I think he might well have been that day. Yeah. So, but we won. So that yeah. was good. And well, that, I think it was after Alan Hudson um, uh, played at Chelsea, wasn't he? Because uh, he played at Chelsea before that, didn't he? Yeah, I think the theory was that he was going to leave the King's Road and uh, you know calm himself down a little bit, <laughs> stop. <laughs> But it never really quite worked out that way. So uh, that uh, that Osgood Hudson, um, uh, Eddie McCready drinking pact that was uh, that was quite something for them to. That was in the days of Chopper Harris as well, I think, wasn't it? It it was Ron Harris. I remember. I remember him as well. Yeah. So (laughs) yes, good grief. Right, we digress. Happy days, though. I mean, uh, (laughs) proper proper footballers. If you could survive Chopper Harris. well, I, I I showed my sorry, but we're still going on about this, aren't we? I, I showed my sons um, footage of the nineteen seventy two League Cup final between Stoke and Chelsea. And of course, we had Dennis Smith, who had had been known to play with a broken leg, because <laughs> of course there was only one sub in those days, and so yeah. and he he did actually. I mean, it obviously wasn't you know fractured properly, but you know he he played with a hairline fracture. Yeah. And they had Chopper Harris, and the players were literally kicking lumps out of each other on all over the pitch. You know, so it's um, it was very, very different. And oh, yeah, yeah, those uh, Tommy Smith and Norman Hunter days. Those, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure did Spurs have anybody like that. Well, Dave McKay. Dave McKay was. Oh my, of course, yes, right. He, he had a few. He had a few um, moves. <laughs> There's a there's there's a there's a famous picture of him. Uh, I think it's grabbing Billy Bremner by yeah. his neck. So. Um, 
so yeah, yeah, very, very, very different days. And also, you can understand it because the pitches were just appalling. <laughs> so some of those pitches you just couldn't play down the centre of them anyway. Because well, were... yeah, it's just mud baths. I mean, I, I, I've seen footage of Mackay playing on the, the, I mean, the baseball ground. I think was the worst of them all. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. Cloud field, even in you know at the start of the season in the middle of summer, you know, it still <laughs> looked like they'd been, you know grazing on it um yeah well i think that's one of the things that influences sort of cluffy's aerial game you know because that's just about the only place you could play football was on the ground was down the wing so he had some he had some terrific wind uh wingers you know in those days like people like alan hinton and uh you know or even even as he even as he sort of developed his squad he just had some great crosses of the ball indeed and so did leeds united in those days as well yeah, in those days it would be Eddie Gray and and even Peter Lorimer, people like that. You know, I mean, they could they could play a bit. Alan Clark. Well, well, I, I, you know, I mean, I know that you know not every game was filmed back then, but you know, you see footage of Alan Hudson digging amazing passes out of the mud at Stoke. Yeah, and you just think there's you, and of course the balls were different. We sound like a pair of old farts, don't we? But it's you know that is you know it, it would it, I don't think the match would go ahead sometimes on on the pitches. No, that's right, and I think actually with the with the standard of boots as well. I think you know the the boots were so much heavier as well, proper studs. And uh, these days, the boots in comparison are super light, um, so much more capable uh, than what you had before. You know, I mean, if you go back to those days where the boots would get wet and heavier, and, and the and the studs were nylon with metal cores, yeah. I mean, you could do some damage with those. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it's it, it's changed. Uh, it's changed quite a bit, but I have to say that the, the nice thing about it is that ethos in a lot of the clubs hasn't changed, especially in the championship and uh, you know in more local clubs. I, I always prefer doing watching local games rather than Premier League games, to be honest, because there's still so much more in the atmosphere. I remember, you know, um, if you go to this new stadium at Spurs, it's, it's nothing like White Hart Lane used to be, um, and it, did, it didn't have this, it doesn't have the same atmosphere that say the old. Uh, uh, Upton Park used to have, or uh, or the old Valley at Charlton. Yeah, well, well, West Ham, I think, are certainly a different club now, aren't they? For for playing in an, an athletic stadium, I think. So. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, nice. It's nice to, to find somebody that actually remembers all this stuff. I thought I was the only one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I bore my my. My my son, you know, we, to get us back onto track with the analytics side of thing. My son is a real um, statistician and, uh, and and an analyst, and he, he sort of podcasts and and blogs about these issues now. And he really gets into the numbers because, of course, you know, the, the modern game is also defined by by its numbers, as you, as you were suggesting. Um, you know, so yeah. he he gets those and he turns them into coherent thoughts. Um, and uh, you know, we, we we there was the there was a Netflix documentary. We we could always keep this in the podcast, actually, but we'll just tell people <laughs> what, where it all is, and they can skip through it. The um, there's a Netflix documentary, or I think it's on Netflix anyway. So, and we we saw an episode together the other day where they were talking about the role of uh, luck and chance, and um, what, what did they say? Randomness in 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 the outcomes of games. So, for example, they were saying that when you look at the numbers, and they had mathematicians proving all of this, you know, there's typically three goals in a game. One goes to the best club, uh, the best team, sorry, and the other two are allocated randomly. 
Um, so the balance of probability is the best best team will win two one, um, but that uh, obviously doesn't always happen, and, and it explains an awful lot about some of the results you see. Although it doesn't explain why, you know, Spurs beat us four nil consistently for for about two years. Um, or why well, in, some, in some respects, you know, the, the, this stuff still has a, has a direct relevance into the into the workplace because you know Spurs' the squad is is a very small one. Um, but they've got a very inspirational leader and they've got a real belief in the club that I think of all of the top four finishers last year, Spurs, you know, did, did incredible things with very little money. Um, and, and, you know, cause everybody thinks that we're going to suffer the same sort of problem they had at the Emirates, which is spent all the money on the stadium. And then the team suffered for the following decade. Um, and, but you know, one of the things that Poch has done is, is he has got a spirit at the club, um, and people play for each other, and I, I don't think they've lost many in the transfer window. Um, and, and you know, that's it, 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 these things are very difficult to pin down. But but the, the, a lot of those leaders have a, have an almost feminine quality about them. If you, I mean, if you, it, it's an interesting comparison because if you go back to people like uh, uh, Bill Shankly, you know, Bill Shankly was was both mother and father at that club, mm-hmm. um, and he looked after his boys. And and the same was is, was true latterly with Alex Ferguson. Mm-hmm. You know that they, they weren't just driven by the numbers or the analytics. They really looked after their their kids, and um, you know some of those kids really repaid it for for Fergie, and then some. Um, you know, you may you probably remember Lee Sharp. Mm-hmm. He was he was a brilliantly talented guy, same same class as uh, as Beckham and um, Scholes and all that. But he he just wouldn't be he wouldn't fall into the sort of family way. Um, and he was always a bad lad, and he, he ended up achieving very little, you know. So it's you know I think that, that this this role of nurturing and, and this balance of, of of gender skills is quite an important thing because we've kind of forgotten about it a bit in the in the workplace these days with things being much more tactical, short term. And, and in my first book, um, Too Fast to Think, which uh, uh, predated Leadership Lab, I, I wrote about this that when people are constantly interrupted all the time, um, they're constantly forced into a left brain analytical a mode of compare and contrast and analyze things. And, it's, and, um, and yet when you ask uh, leaders in workplaces where they get their best ideas and what they're doing when they get their best ideas, uh, they often say one of three things. They say that often my best ideas come when I'm not in the office, they come when I'm on my own, and interestingly, they come when I'm not trying to do yeah. something. Um, uh, which suggests that, that it's only when the brain, or the left-hand side of the brain is really switched off that the right-hand side, the deep processing, can come up with these incredible epiphanies and solutions. And uh, I fear that in a lot of boardrooms and a lot of leadership teams, we're losing that because people don't trust that anymore because you can't measure it. You can't, uh, you can't put maths on it. Yeah. Um, but we all know when we get hit with those epiphanies that they're brilliant. They're brilliant ideas, and you can really apply them, and they really matter. Uh, so, that, that's another thing we put in the leadership lab, which is that without, when, when people are absolutely certain about things, then the only provenance of that type of certainty must be mediocrity, because uh, I, I don't know anybody, any, any leader now that can predict something and be certain about it, uh, because our job as leaders is to not to predict something, but to prepare for all of the options. And be ready for each of those, and uh, and that's you know that's a, a difference in boardrooms where they rely 
almost entirely on the on the maths. Um, you know, a lot of things a lot of things matter more than maths. Yeah, because I, I was also intrigued by your your borrowing from um, quantum, which is something I've also done in some some of the writing that I've done about how, and once you start looking at something, you changing the nature of it. And I know that's a sort of it's a bastardization of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, but it, but I'm guessing yeah. you would agree that it applies there. Once you start measuring something, you change the nature of it. And so once you start focusing on a particular issue, um, you you affect um, how it functions. Well, um, was, uh, Pippa and I describe this as situational fluency, the ability to see across the horizon and join the dots more than drill down, because so much of, of what goes on in a good workplace, you can spot leadership at all levels. Leadership isn't, the provenance of leadership isn't just the boardroom. Uh, you can see leadership in, uh, in a team of cleaners. You can see le- leadership in single parent families. In fact, you can see often uh, greater leadership qualities in single parent families, fiscal planning, organization, logistics, morale. You can see more of that uh, than you can see in some boardrooms. Um, you know, leadership isn't just confined to leaders. It should be something that's taught much more widely. Okay. Uh, we seem to confuse it with professional education whereas leadership is uh, a big chunk of it, it's moral education. And it's interesting that Goldman Sachs in their recruitment policy is taking a lot more graduates now from courses in divinity um, uh, and, and not just economics or business. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. What, what, what is the thinking behind that? Well, people that know what's morally and ethically correct, bearing in mind that so many CEOs are failing because of ethical reasons. I mean, we have to ask the questions, You know, did the Catholic priests not know that, the, that these accusations were being made? Did the, did the board at Oxfam not know that, that they were exchanging aid for sex? Did the board of Volkswagen not know that the emissions were being controlled? Did the bankers not know that, that some of this money was coming from questionable sources? Uh, did Southern Water not know that they polluted the, the rivers? Um, if they did know, then why did they try to cover it up? Um, and, and this notion is that, is that somehow with the data that's around, uh, a lot of leadership thinks they can see much more into the consumer, they can understand much more, without realizing that that's a two-way mirror, that, that, that people outside can see into the morals, into the, into the moral behavior of the, of the boardroom. So one of the, one of the areas that Pippa and I are writing about currently for the next book is, um, is the fact that AI, as we know it, won't be used to enhance fact-gathering or pattern analysis. I mean, we can do that already. We think that AI may be used for some form of augmented morality. So AI will look at augmented morality and, and work out what, where things are being done um, uh, which are un- unethical. As you know, the difference between management, management is does things right, uh, leadership does the right things. It's, it sounds very similar, but um, the two are in actual fact as we've seen with so much leadership failure, um, there are, that's one of the things that accounts for a great deal of cynicism in the workplace towards leadership, because it looks like the leadership doesn't care about these things which can't be measured. Okay, and it, I mean, are these are they people coming into these roles, are they being given that as a specific role? They're not being recruited into a management system per se, but they are being brought on as ethical or, or, or moral leaders within the organisation. No, I, th- I think it's one of those things. It's a, it's a sort of a, a, a you know to to sort of be reference uh, Schrödinger. It's it's a it's a it's metadata. Um, you, you should be a leader and know the difference between right and wrong. Okay. Um, you know, leadership leadership 
in its purest form, should be a moral crusade. And, and, and the point that we, that we made in the leadership lab was that the models that we're using are often these Judeo-Christian models which are passed down, where there's a single infallible leader like Jesus Christ uh, or Moses. And we replace those with people in our modern day like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. And we pro project onto them these qualities of the infallible uh, single leader. And we make the point in the book that, that, the, uh, that we concentrate too much on the leader because that's a very male ego centric thing to do and not enough on the ship. It's the, the leadership which really matters. Leadership isn't one person. Leadership is a team of people, indeed an attitude of a community of people indulged upon, uh, involved on a collective task, a collective enterprise. Okay. And, uh, and, and that's the thing which, which you think is a really important thing that, that leadership parenthesizes people and brings them together in a time of the internet where the internet is actually atomizing people uh, and, and driving them further apart. And, um, uh, and, and it's, it's killing conversations, particularly in the young, young, in younger generations of people. So, you know, the younger generations of people have an awful lot of communication. But they have very little conversation. And when there's no conversation, it's very difficult to resolve emotional difficulties, very difficult to negotiate if you can't converse with people. Um, yeah, so, sorry. I was going to say there's a growing body of evidence as well also supporting this view that, um, and, and I think people also know it instinctively, is that you've got to bring people together in physical space. So all the collaborative tools. I saw something, I think it was in the New York or something last week, about how these collaborative tools like Slack and so on, actually they're very good at what they do, but you, it's not, it, they're very bad at other things. And they, they don't encourage people to build relationships and collaborate in certain ways and share information. And so you've got to actually get the balance right between them. And too many firms have actually gone um, and people get sucked into this trap of sort of just um, communicating electronically rather than actually sitting down and talking to people over a coffee with a notebook. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and talking to people at all, at all levels, making conversations uh, wherever you can find them. One of the interesting people we interviewed as part of the uh, Lewis Advisory Board, the labs, um, uh, we interviewed a vicar, and uh, this is a, a, um, a, cl a clergyman who works at St Andrews University in the, in the university chaplaincy. When he started, he was seeing about one in 100 students there for uh, mental and emotional difficulties, and now he's seeing 30 in every hundred. Um, his practice has just uh, um, exploded in the last uh, 10 years, often with kids that have never had anybody listening to them. And, um, and I said, how do you get them to talk to you? And he, he said, I create a powerful space. And I, I asked him, how, how did he do that? And he said, I remove things from the space. Uh, I take noise away, I take uh, furniture away. But often we just sit on two chairs in an empty room until one of us speaks. And, and we just sometimes sit in silence. And, and when they do speak, uh, it's a revelation because nobody's ever listened to them before. Because in reality, um, you and I both know as, 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 as media people, people aren't listening. <laughs> people aren't reading. And, and a lot of people aren't listening to anything that's being said. And so it kind of, it, it's one of the great problems that leaders have, which is not that they don't know uh, how to communicate with people, but often they're not listening, and so therefore they can't expect other people to listen. Yeah, and so so that's when leaders, you know, sometimes they've just got to learn to shut the f up and listen to other people. <laughs>
Well, well, yeah, I think we all need to do that though occasionally. Don't well, more and more actually. Just just listen to what other people have to say. And, well, we said, I think we said in the book that the four most powerful leadership words were, "What do you think?" And then listen to the answer. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you don't have to take the advice, but it's but it helps that sometimes that people have been asked for their opinion, um, and so uh, so this is one of the points that we make about leadership creating the time and space um, to be able to to do that. But leadership has to look busy uh, and has to be busy and has has the to do list, and so the, and this is the point where we where we where we say that. That the the leadership's got to spend some time being something, and being open uh, is one of them. Being listening to people, um, because leaders tend to have a, uh, a, a the quality of always appearing to be very very busy, and and it, it takes a conscious effort for them to to make time to speak to people. And of course, when the leader's relaxed, and when the leader's got time to listen, everybody else is far more likely to be heard under those circumstances. Okay, because that was I mean this perhaps should be the final part of the conversation, but you, you also talk about the problem of distraction in the book. Mm. Um, and um, I, I asked the question, um, you know, so how did people um, at the top of organizations address the issue of distraction, which is a problem for everybody, of course. Mm. Um, and I think, uh, you know, one of the examples I always sort of fall back on is I'm kind of aware that there's, there's this idea that leaders um, are the ones who have those sort of old phones that don't have um, all the smart functions on them, so that they only deal with specific issues. Mm. Um, is, is that something that you've you've come across in your work? I think I think if the if the leader doesn't know the basics of how to use their phone, um, then you're going to struggle anyway. And and the most basic thing of how to use your phone is to know where the off switch is. Yeah, and the, every leader has to ask themselves the fundamental question where these epiphanies come to them, could a computer do that for you? Could a computer go to a junior member of your team and spend some time talking with them and walk away with the person feeling a sense of pride and a sense of purpose that they wouldn't have, have had had the computer not talk to them? And if that's the case, then the leaders have to recognize that they have to do what the computer is unwilling or unable to do. They have to, to, to be human. And they have to demonstrate those human qualities of inspiration, of the epiphany of being able to join things up, and sometimes in quiet contemplation. I think it was uh, Einstein that said the residue of time, uh, creativity is defined as the residue of time wasted. Most senior leaders that I know and people in a workplace are actually still thinking about their work even when they're not in it. And this this comes to the fact that this, this very last point, which is that Leaders are there to to provide. They, they, they should be. They should have a sense of fun, and and a sense of humour and a sense of fun is something they should take paradoxically very seriously indeed, because when people uh, are having fun, they learn skills, and when they learn new skills, they get better at what they do. I've never known anybody that can get really really good at something they fundamentally dislike. So the psychologists say that all competence follows preference, and if you can make if you've got a, a, a team that's fun, they will bear greater amounts of stress. They will have less absenteeism, uh, and you know they might actually enjoy coming to work and enjoy being with you and enjoy being part of the team. And if you get paid for enjoying yourself, then surely that's the definition of a, of a great leader. Okay, that's absolutely fantastic. 
and thank you for finishing on such a sort of positive point. Um, so yeah, that's great. Thanks very much. All right. Yeah, you're, uh, you're, you're welcome. It's been it's been a pleasure talking to you. And um, I'd, uh, I I don't know if you come down to London uh, at, at any stage um, for away matches or anything like that. But uh, if if you do uh, come down and have a beer, um, uh, and uh, I, I I suspect that uh, that that if if you if you're the true if you're the true long term football supporter, you'll be, you, you won't be unacquainted in the ways of the odd pint. And, uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't mind a pint. Although my my capacity isn't what it was, I have to say. You know, so. yours, 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 and my, yours and my, yours and my both. But it doesn't stop me coming back again tomorrow for trying for trying again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes longer to recover these days. I've you know when I, uh, the Friday nights out with the lads, you know, we we are much more sedate. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, I'm 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 aware. Don't don't make the mistake that I made of getting old. Um, you know, just stay young if you can. <laughs> Yeah, I think I've already I've already blown that. So. All right. Well, um, well, good luck for the season ahead, uh, Mark, and uh, and thanks for giving me the time uh, today to to, to contribute. Uh, I've, I've looked at uh, what you do, and I think it's great. And it's nice to see somebody who's also a writer and a publisher all rolled into to one. As you know, my background was working on the FT Economist, and uh, but I I found my way into journalism from shifting and, and local papers. So, um, you know, at heart, I'm an old stringer. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not. I, I found my way in via marketing and, um, you know, so I, I blundered into it, essentially. I, but I, I mean, to come back to it, I'll, I'll let you go in a second, but to come back to a point that you raised in the chat as well, there's one of the things I'm sort of interested with is um, looking at the, the data surrounding what we publish because it's online. I know how, how things are functioning and, uh, you know, we, we, it, it's very odd. You can't predict anything. And, uh, you know, and there's, there's a lot of virtue signaling with stories on, um, on social media. People will share things with clearly when they haven't read them just because they want to get a certain thing across. And, and equally, you know, we'll, if we publish something that doesn't come across in a particular way, they'll, they'll read it but not necessarily share it. And there are lots of interesting examples of that. So I think there's a little chat in there from, from me at some point to an audience, I think, about how yeah. that works. I, 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 the dynamics of it, I think, are interesting. Yeah, you're quite right. The um, I, I did an interview on the Moral Maze with the with the, with the book, and Michael Portillo said that he thought the book was uh, woolly-minded uh, virtue signalling. Okay. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, if you've read it, then you'll you, you know you'll see that the the provenance of that type of certainty can only be me- mediocrity, because it, uh, it's the failure of the ability to join the dots and look across which has destroyed the modern Conservative Party because it, it, it's it's done its analysis. And it's and it and it's about to destroy itself and tear it apart, tear itself apart. Yeah. Um, and the Labour Party, in some respects, has done the same thing. So the great irony of all of this uh, talk about being anti-European and coming out of Europe is it's left us with a with a more uh, politi- European political characteristics, splintered pressure groups and and shifting alliances than it ever was before. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's uh, again, it comes back to this leadership issue, and Pippa and I. We're having a discussion about this uh, just yesterday, which is that in the makeup of the House of Commons over the last 50 years has shifted from about half half graduates to being almost entirely graduates. Yeah, um, uh, people from a set background, a set set of aspirations, less military, less clergy, less less ladder climbers, and you need those places. I mean, and and it's 
it's interesting, you know, when you when you look at the potteries and you look at the Midlands, and I'm from the north, and you see the communities that have been torn apart by the mixture of the individualism of, of factorism uh, and the, and and a migrant activity. It also it also suggests that those people want they want the ladders, they want to know the elevators are going to work again, and so it's important for those people to remember the roots, and yet. The, 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 they seem to be, they seem to be more disconnected than ever they were in the past. Yeah, well, I, I think um, I mean I, I I work in Germany quite a lot, and um, and obviously it's it's I always get asked you know about about all of this, and I have to explain to them that you know my view is that um, in places around here, which was obviously a Brexit voting area, a lot of the vote was driven by anger. Yeah, and some decades old anger, you know, thirty forty year old anger. Yeah, and, um, and austerity, austerity obviously was the, f- the final nail for them. Yeah, the, the mistake they made was asking an angry population what they thought about a subject. I think if they if they'd asked the referendum on any any sort of subject, I think they they might have been in for a shock. Yeah, but unfortunately, they asked them about this, which is incredibly important. So, yeah, and that's interesting because you know a lot of the paternalistic employers in the Midlands are sort of replaced by. Uh, modern employers. I remember the case with um, Phones for You, John Cordwell's business. Yeah, it had such an incredible churn of people, very aggressive, and uh, made made John very wealthy, but uh, didn't do a great deal for the communities. And that and that's one of the things that I think people are prepared to embrace capitalism, support capitalism, but it's got to be made to work for other people as well. And and that's the point that we're trying to make in the leadership lab, which is. We have to have a better measure of the, rather than just maths or money or P&L or bottom line. We actually have to have some quantified thinking on the balance sheet and the P&L of how, how much commitment to the community a, a company has. Because it, once, it's, once it's no longer connected to any form of community, it's no longer connected to people who, who it serves, who it supports. Because yes. ultimately... If it's not connected to those things, that a government will come and sequester the taxation um, from them anyway. So, uh, you know, governments only sequester taxation from successful companies when they actually don't fulfil their obligations, and um, and increasingly those companies are actually even very difficult to get the taxation from because they they again tell you that they're that they're inside the law, but patently most people believe that. Paying five percent tax when you're a huge tech company, for instance, is is not fair, even though it's legal. <laughs> but, well, it, well, it obviously isn't fair, though, is it? I mean, that's and, that, and that's right. the thing about this paradox, which is that something can be completely fair and above board, uh, but everybody knows it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the paradox. Okay, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, Mark. Bye. Bye. Bye.